Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Now, our Father and our God, we thank you for the incredible things that we just sang about, that the Lord Jesus would come from heaven to earth and leave the glory and splendor that he knew there, and to humble himself by taking on our humanity, even to the point of death on a cross. Thank you that we can celebrate that tonight at his table. And thank you for the truths that he gave to us through his apostles that we will study tonight about the Spirit of God who has come to fulfill a new covenant. So as we learn of him, as we learn of this whole doctrine of the Trinity, uh, help us to get a grasp on it as best we are able. I pray you'd help me tonight and guide my thoughts and my words by the Spirit of God. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if you are joining us for the first time, this is a course on basic discipleship. This is our discovery class, so to speak. But I've had just raw outlines that people have used, and those who teach it have listened to the tapes, and I say, this is what I want taught. But I am now giving detailed outlines so that anyone can pretty much pick it up and teach it. Uh, so that's my goal in this. It's a, a tremendous amount of time and work for me, but I think it will pay off in the kingdom of God. Many churches are using this across the country. Uh, they've been using it for years, and every once in a while, uh, every couple of months, a new church calls and say, hey, we'd like to use that discovery class material, and we, we share it with them. All right, tonight we uh, begin the topic, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, in our series, there's 21 handouts in this series, and this particular lesson is a predecessor to the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's really important to have some handles on the doctrine of the Trinity to be able to understand more precisely the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that's our objective. This will, I think, take us three weeks to get through this handout. As you can see, as a result of the study here on page two, uh, as a result of the study of this topic, we want to be able to, one, have a clear understanding of what is meant by the triunity of God, to be able to defend the equality of each member of the Trinity, to be able to refute those who deny the personality of the Holy Spirit, reducing Him to a force or a concept. And some Christians, sadly, in their thinking, treat him that way. They don't even refer to him with pronouns like he or him, but they refer to the Spirit of God as it. And a misunderstanding of his personhood will lead to really a misunderstanding of how he fills and empowers us. So this will be very, very important. We want to be able to support scripturally by the way, some people come up and say, I found a typo, scriptural or biblical. Scriptural, biblical, scripturally, those are all lowercase letters. Scripture and Bible are uppercase. Just for your information, but they're used so wrong so often, they'll probably change the rule on it. But right now, I'm following the current rule, all right? So to be able to support scripturally that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal members of one another. That's what we want to look at. To be able also to present some helpful illustrations in communicating the triunity of God. 
Now, by way of introduction, and if you teach this at some point, I usually put kind of an introductory paragraph that gives you the overall objective of the section that we're working on. It has been said, and when you usually say an old preacher said or it's been said, it typically means we don't know who said it. Now, some have dumped this quote on Augustine. He didn't say it. You can't find it anywhere in his writings. Kind of like Calvin said, you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Great statement. The Protestant reformers taught it, but you can't find that statement written in a single article by any of the reformers. Who said it? I don't know who said it. I've heard it accredited to about 10 different people in the last, uh, in the 20th century. But it has well been said, with that said, if you try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your mind. If you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your soul. And that's a pretty potent statement. You can't totally figure God out. He is beyond our thinking. We're finite. He's infinite. But God has revealed much about Himself that we can understand. The secret things are known unto the Lord our God, but the things that He has revealed, Moses wrote, He revealed to us and to our children. So there's much that we can understand about the Lord that He wants us to understand. But with that said, a denial of what He has revealed is a clear loss of salvation or really someone who's never been saved. There are many things that are difficult to understand that really can be only understood with a regenerate mind. And when your mind is regenerated, you're able to embrace it. You're able to perceive it. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then a few verses later, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The word see there means to perceive, to understand. There are some things that cannot be understood. And so Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. A natural man, Jude defines in Jude 19, is devoid of the Spirit, without the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't mean we understand everything, but we can embrace it by faith because we know in our heart of hearts that it's true. If you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. The most difficult thing about the Christian concept of the Trinity is that there's no way to adequately explain this revealed truth. The Trinity is a concept that is impossible for any human being to fully understand, let alone explain. However, that should not surprise us that finite minds cannot fully comprehend and explain the infinite God. We should not expect to be able to fully understand Him. With that said, there are many truths about the Trinity that God has plainly revealed. Though some truths concerning the Trinity may be incomprehensible to us, This does not mean that they are not true or not based on the teachings of the Bible. So we're going to begin by looking at the evidence for the oneness of God, and then we'll look at the evidences for the threeness of God, and then we'll look at the evidences for the triunity of God. So again, I think this will take us three weeks. Let's begin with the evidence for the oneness of God. The Old Testament teaches the oneness of God. In fact, both the Old and New Testaments insist that there is only one true God, with Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, representing the most recited passage in the entire Old Testament by the Jewish people in every Sabbath. You know, if you ask most Christians, what's the most recited verse in the New Testament, they'd say John 3, 16. 
If you ask the Jew what's the most recited passage, they'd say this, and it is. They recited every single Sabbath. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's what God wants, a complete love from us because he completely loved us. God doesn't like half-hearted love. He wants total commitment. So this verse, Hero Israel, notice here, I note the, the verse is famously known as the Shema. Shema Yitzrael Adonai Elachuni Adonai Echad. And when a Jew said that, he closed his he did this. He put his hand over his eyes. They do it. When you go to the wall in Jerusalem, the Western Wall, we used to call it the Wailing Wall, because there was a time, of course, when that other half of the city was off limits to the Jews until the 1969 war. But at the Western Wall, because it's on the western side of the Temple Mount, you'll see Jews there, and occasionally they'll put their hands over their eyes very often when they first approach the wall. And they do that because they are reciting what they consider the most important verse in the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And they do that to give full focus, full concentration. By the way, there's a lot of things that Jewish people do. That particular tradition comes from a book called the Talmud. Um, If you remember, um, most of what the Jews passed down from century to century, they did through oral tradition. And so some of the oral traditions were true and right, and you have biblical substance for them, say, in the New Testament. But a lot of the oral traditions, and by the way, they came to a point in Jewish history where they were afraid, we're going to lose the oral traditions. And what brought it to a head was 70 AD, and then a few years later where the rest of the Jews were being driven out. They said, who's going to teach the next generation? So they took the oral traditions and they codified them in a book. And there's different ways to describe it, but generally it's described holistically as the Talmud. And of course, some of those oral traditions, Jesus rebuked in his day. He said, you teach the traditions of men. And they, you know, focused on a lot of these traditions that had come down that had really no authoritative or biblical basis. And a lot of the traditions were, of course, in defiance of what God has said. But nonetheless, this is called Shema. Shema is the very first word, Shema Yitzrael Aranai. The very first word of the verse is Shema. So we, the word here is Shema. This verse is known as the Shema, Hebrew for here, and is the great commandment. Remember in Jesus' encounter with his scribe and he tested him and he asked him what the greatest of all the commandments was? Jesus quotes this. So it doesn't surprise us that the Jews consider this as the most sacred verse because Jesus did. So it's called the Great Commandment in Matthew twenty-two forty, representing Israel's confession of faith as to who God is and what our duty is towards him. When Moses records, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, he is first telling us that Yahweh, now they would say Adonai, because it's four four consonants in Hebrew. And because there was a period of time when they were deported to Babylon and then the Babylonians were overthrown by the Assyrians, remember, and a lot of the Jewish people 
had as their lingua franca at one point Greek. That was the common language. They didn't speak Hebrew. And so when they began to learn Hebrew again, since the most covenanted, most sacred name for God in the Jewish mind is those four consonants to which God identified himself to Moses and Abraham and so on. YHW, how do you pronounce, how do you vocalize it? And so not even wanting to misrepresent how it should be said verbally, the tetragrammaton as it's called, four letters. They would say Adonai. That's, that's the, you know, you talk about people who revered, the, and many who revere the name of God. But you can have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with righteousness, right? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 10? They've got a zeal for God, all right, but not in accordance with righteousness. There's a lot of people like that in the world today, religious but lost. So when he says the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, he is first telling us that Yahweh, which is the four letters that are translated with two in English, the Lord. And do you see how Lord is written here in your, your script? It's capital L, capital O-R-D. And you'll see it also in the Old Testament, capital L, small letter O-R-D. That's a different Hebrew word. And so if you haven't read lately, the uh, pre the the the, uh, the preface to the New American Standard Bible it tells you how most English translations follow the spelling of the word like there's capital G capital O capital D distinguished from another Hebrew word capital G small letter O small letter O D so if you haven't read that lately maybe just read the preface sometime this week so he's using the word Yahweh or Adonai as they would say. First telling us that Yahweh, the Lord, is the only God and that he alone is to be worshipped, thereby rejecting polytheism and henotheism. Polytheism, if that's a new word to you, poly means many, right, is the belief that there are many gods to be worshipped. While henotheism worships just one God while acknowledging the existence of other gods that others may choose to worship. So like the ancient Greeks and the Egyptians, they had a whole pantheon of gods, but very often a Caesar or a leader or an individual would pick one. He didn't deny the existence of the others, but he'd pick one. Um, a brother there rock, walking across the back, one of our deacons is from India. And so in India and in Hinduism, I mean, there's more gods than, <laughs> I wouldn't say people, uh, because they have over a billion people. They have approximately 300 million gods in India. I mean, everything's a god. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what's a, that's a god. You know, and, and so they would say there are many gods, but people typically choose one, and that's called henotheism. However, beyond, the revel, beyond general revelation that reveals this truth, what we call monotheism, that there's only one god and only one god that should be worshipped, how do we know that? We know it from general revelation, that general information God has given to all men apart from Scripture, the creation of the conscience, Romans 1, Romans 2. However, beyond general revelation that reveals this truth, this verse and the whole Scripture hinges on the fact that there is just one God. In fact, it is the oneness of God that points to one way of salvation. Because if other gods existed, 
then Jesus Christ would not have had to have died, for there would be many paths going to heaven. And so, like, if you go to India, and we're talking about it in an elders meeting not long ago, if you reach India, Pakistan, and China, they all have over a billion people. You're approaching almost just three countries out of 200-some. you got almost half the people on the planet. Um, but, for instance, in places like India, oh, you're a follower of Jesus, that's great. You know, I, I, they don't have a problem with that. He's just one of many gods. Pick a god, any god, any, meeny, miny, mo, you know, kind of deal. Whatever you want to choose. But that's contrary to general revelation that God has given about himself, that there's only one creator. And, of course, the idea that there are multiple gods leads to the truth or the false teaching that there are many paths. Moses, number seven, makes it clear that Yahweh, the Lord, as it's translated, is the only God, and therefore the Lord is to be the sole object of Israel's worship and their allegiance and their affection. So henotheism was a popular theology amongst the Canaanites. And so when the Lord gave the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which you find in two key passages, right? Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. One, one day I went over to the Bluffton campus, and it was so cool. One of the kids had the Ten Commandments memorized. Not the way I memorized them as a kid, but from the Scripture itself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because henotheism was prevalent across Canaan. Pick a god, any god, and God says, no, there's only one god. And that's what he has revealed, not again just in creation, but in his word. So, number eight, in fact, the Hebrew is difficult to fully capture in English. And so some translations render the verse in English, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one placing emphasis on the fact that there is and can be one and only one God. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. There's one and only God. That's one way to translate the Hebrew, but it doesn't fully capture it. Other translations rendered the verse, and they're equally correct because there's not a single way to translate it unless you're going to paraphrase it and write a commentary on it rather than do a verse-by-verse, word-for-word kind of translation. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you have on the one, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then like in the ESV or say the New King James, it says the Lord our God, the Lord is one, placing the emphasis on the truth that God is a unity or whole, that he is one unified and complete person. Because as we'll see in a moment, that is brought out in the Hebrew as well. Both truths are brought out in the original and serve as an affirmation of God's triunity which we will examine in detail in this handout. And again, be patient. It will take us three weeks. The Old Testament clearly affirms God's oneness. And so Solomon can pray on the day he dedicated the temple to God. That's a great event. If you haven't read 1 Kings 8 lately, 
you know, where they dedicate and they call all the people and it's, it's, a, it's a powerful scene that God unfolds and they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies and God's presence fills the place. And anyway, in the prayer it says, and these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord, this is from 1 Kings 8, 59 to 61. These words with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments uh, at, as at this day. Now, sadly, I note here, in the thinking of most Jewish people today, these verses teach that the Lord is God, there is no one else, and for them, this disqualifies the New Testament teaching of one God existing in three persons. Now, I should say in the same breath, there have been Jewish people converted by reading Genesis 1.1. Because as I'll show out, I hope to share in just a moment, it's in the very first verse, in the front door, God is in kernel form affirming his triunity. So it's amazing, rabbis who've scratched their heads and they say, hmm, Genesis 1.1, and they get stuck. And others put their heels in, and they put emphasis, there's only one God, and these Christians worship three gods, so Christianity must be false. Now, what leads people to false conclusions? Many times, other false premises in life. So what blinded the Jews in Paul's day, the same thing that blinds them in our day, and the same thing that blinds a Gentile in our day, who's lost? Self-righteousness. Thinking that somehow you can establish a righteousness before God by what you do. So I'm just stating here, the Old Testament, number one, teaches the oneness of God, but that's not a unique Old Testament doctrine. Point B here in your outline, the New Testament teaches the oneness of God. Christians need to affirm the biblical revelation of the unity of God, for we worship one God existing in three persons, not three separate gods. Christians must come to a renewed understanding of the unity of God so that we can also biblically and accurately represent God's triunity. So we must affirm the truth. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and not three. And so, for instance, the New Testament affirms the oneness of God. Like in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul wrote, Yet for us, there is one God. At the same time, we must affirm that the statement, the Lord is one, does not contradict the truth of the Trinity, but in fact establishes it. Interestingly, when the Bible says God is one as in the Shema, like we just read in Deuteronomy 6.1, the Hebrew word for one is, we, we pronounce it in English, ashad. They'd say akad, akad, which most literally is used to speak of a compound unity. 
Follow me now. Instead of using the Hebrew word yashid, which speaks of an absolute unity or singularity, like in Genesis 22.2, Psalm 25.16, God chose to describe himself with the word ekad, which speaks of a compound unity. Let me see if I can illustrate it. The first use of ekad in the Bible is found in Genesis 1.5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, one Echad day, one day. Even here, we see a unity, one day, with the idea of plurality made up of eve, evening and morning. So it's, it's an interesting language. It's, it's a, what you call a compound unity. Likewise, Genesis 2.24 uses a cod in, stay, in saying the two shall become one flesh. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where there is the idea of unity, one flesh, making a plurality. There are many examples that we could cite. I gave you some passages from Exodus and Ezekiel. There's dozens of passages. But what is clear from each is that the word one in no way has the exclusive idea of an absolute singularity. The idea of one God and three persons coincides with the term echad. Whether in the Shema, like in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, or in the opening verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1, there, there even the name of Elohim, for God is grammatically a plural noun used as if it were a singular. Now follow this. While it is not obvious from English, the first indication of there being a plurality in God, we're not saying plural gods, but a plurality in God, is found in the very first verse of the Bible where in Genesis 1-1, the noun for God is in the plural. In the beginning, God, plural, created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. Parashit para Elohim. In the beginning, Barashit created, bara, God, plural. That'd be like us saying, um, um, they is fat. That's poor English, right? They is fat. We wouldn't say, we wouldn't say they are fat, but we wouldn't say they is fat. Well, it pops right off the page, and this is why I say some Jews have been converted reading Genesis 1-1, because God used it to stir their thinking as Revelation was progressively unfolded. Now, remember, not all Jews have ever been lost in the Old Testament era. There were all kinds of Jews that came to faith. They believed that God would provide the Messiah. They believed that God would actually become a man and provide redemption. They didn't fully understand it, but they knew enough that God was going to provide redemption because we couldn't redeem ourselves. And he had taught that right from the beginning that sin deserves death, and so Adam and Eve learned that fig leaf religion would not work. You could not cover your shame by your own works of your hands, and so God killed animals. And that's why he received Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's not because one guy brought his best and got the other guy brought his second best. That came out of um, 
19th century Germany who wanted to deny the blood atonement of Christ and strangely became popularized in some evangelical circles in the latter half of the 20th century. No, God has, had been teaching the truth that sin deserves death, therefore without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so one came on the basis of faith, the New Testament tells us. Abel came in faith. What's faith? Faith is based on what God had revealed, what God has said. And God had revealed, how did Abel get it? I don't know. Maybe Adam and Eve told him. That's what I suspect. Maybe God told him directly. We do know Abel was a prophet. How do I know that? Jesus tells me Abel was a prophet. I don't learn that from the Old Testament. I learned that from the New Testament. He indicted the Pharisees with the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, from the first prophet to the last prophet. And we do know that all the prophets preached Messiah. Peter tells us that in Acts 10. So Abel understood some things that maybe we don't give him credit for. Now I'm getting off key here, but what I'm trying to say is while it's not obvious from English, the first indication of there being a plurality of God is found in the first verse of the Bible, where in Genesis 1-1, the noun for God is in the plural. In the beginning, God, plural noun, created singular verb, the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word translated God is the word El, translated El. But when it is in the plural, as in this verse, it is the word Elohim. The plural nature of God is further supported by the fact that the plural Elohim is accompanied by a singular verb created, such that in the first verse, both the plural and singular nature of God is found. So while God is in his essence, while God is in his essence, his Father, his Son, and his Spirit, it is God who created the heavens and the earth, not gods and not gods. The fact that God can be one and can also be three is not a New Testament doctrine. For at the end of the sixth day of creation, when God makes Adam, we're told this in Genesis 1. And notice the plural pronouns I have underlined. Then God said, let us... Make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, while these verses do not explicitly teach the Trinity in full, neither do these verses deny the Trinity as they are consistent with the progressive revelation God has given of himself. Now, that's an important term. Let me pause on it, progressive revelation, because when conservative theologians use that, what they are saying is that God unfolded truth over the course of time. When a liberal pastor or theologian uses it today, by progressive revelation, he means that God is continuing to give new revelation about himself, that the canon of Scripture is not closed. So I'm using it in the historical, biblical way that church fathers used it in the idea that God unfolded things. We, we have in Genesis 1-1 a plurality in God's being. But we don't know everything about the Trinity, do we? And so God is going to unfold his truth with time. So 19, the New Testament, which with its fully revealed teaching on the Trinity, 
is entirely consistent with God's oneness. So that James can say, and some of you are reading the book once a week, and many of you have told me that, and I'm so pleased. You'll remember this verse, you believe that God is one. You do well, the demons also believe and shudder. Contextually, you have an orthodoxy, uh, that state, an orthodox statement about God, but that doesn't necessarily make you a believer. You can believe a lot of orthodoxy and still be lost. Jesus Christ likewise affirms the oneness of God when being tested by one of the scribes as to what commandment is the foremost of all, to which he responded by quoting the Shema. Jesus answered, the foremost is, here it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In addition, the Apostle Paul in verses like 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, also clearly taught that God is one, while at the same time mentioning the Lord Jesus as the creator of the world, a work that God can only do. Uh, we will come to a later uh, handout because it's such a critical topic on the deity of Christ. But there are many ways to demonstrate from the New Testament, especially when you're dealing with various cults and aberrations from historical Christianity, that Christ is God, by, among other things, by, because he does things that only God can do. One of the things that only God can do is only God can create. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know, Paul writes, that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, that there is no God but one. In other words, these little pieces of rock and stone and glass and copper or whatever you make your idol of, you call it a God, but there's no such thing as an idol in the sense that it's a God. Now, is there idolatry? Yes. Do people call things idols? Paul's not denying that. It's, he's dealing with that whole subject in the whole chapter. But he says there's no God but one. So again, he's affirming the oneness of God. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords that men worship, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. So he's affirming the oneness of God, and yet in the same breath he mentions two members of the Godhead. So that brings us to Roman numeral two, evidences for the threeness of God. And you'll have to stay for all three lessons if it's going to make sense, because I promise you the whole thing will come together for you, I hope, by God's grace, in the third lesson. Now note here, here's the overall direction we're going to emphasize the oneness of God, without emphasizing the threeness of God is a common characteristics of the cults, Unitarians. We've got Unitarians here in Buford and Hilton Head and Bluffton. Mormons, we've got some of those. Jehovah's Witness, we have them. The Bible teaches the oneness of God and the threeness of God, and thus the triunity of God. Christians have affirmed, dating back to the earliest centuries, that that the Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit are each God. Even so, the various creeds written in the history of the church have affirmed this truth when it came under attack. Ever before the first creed was written, 
Those who affirm this truth reach their conclusions based on the Bible. That is to say, the Bible was and is the final authority for this dogma. So when you meet one of these wackos who say that the Trinity was invented at the Council of Nicaea, they're speaking sheer ignorance because you have commentary in the Bible in the church fathers. You have the early church fathers and the late church fathers who wrote for a few hundred years and prolific works. In fact, you can, from the church fathers alone, if they burned every Bible in America, you could reproduce every single verse in the New Testament with the exception of one from the church fathers. So they wrote very extensively is what I'm trying to say. And they taught the doctrine of the Trinity. So where did they get it from? The Council of Nicaea? No. The Council of Nicaea was just articulating what Christians had been affirming since the start of the church. So we begin with the Father is recognized as God, the Son is recognized as God, and the Spirit is recognized as God. Now, dealing with the deity of the Spirit is a little more complicated, so we'll focus on that next week. But let's see if we can deal with these first two members of the Godhead. First, the Father is recognized as God. The Bible asserts the deity of each person in the Godhead and unequivocally declares that the Father is God. The fact that the Bible teaches the Father is God is so well received that virtually no one ever denies this truth. But we still need to address it, right? For instance, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, someone asked me, what does 8 colon 6 mean? Again, this is the day we're living in. People are so new to the Bible. And that was a great question they asked. I said, eight stands for the chapter, and the colon is the division between the chapter and the verse within that chapter. So if you're new to the Bible, 1 Corinthians 8, colon 6 is chapter 8, verse 6, all right? Don't ever laugh at people's questions. Take every question they ask you seriously, especially in our day where people know very, very little about the Bible. Many who walk through the door of this church, they've never read the Bible before in their life. And so when I say, here's how you find this book, and someone comes up to me, why do you always do that? Because there's new people here all the time. And don't ever get so, you know, when someone says something like that to me, or why do you teach that over again, they're telling on themselves. What they are saying about themselves is they're not engaged with any new believers. Because when you start engaging yourself with new believers, you discover, man, the questions they have are things that I probably asked. Look, I didn't grow up in a Christian home reading the Scriptures. I never opened a Bible until I was 18. So don't take every question seriously. So in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul states, For there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. The Lord Jesus, when praying to the Father in John 17, 3, again, he's affirming the deity of the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Now, sometimes the word God, most of the time, the word God, when it appears like that in the New Testament, it's a reference to the Father, but not exclusively. 
can refer to the Spirit, and it can refer to the Lord Jesus. But to differentiate the various members of the Godhead, typically the word God is in reference to the Father as in the context of these two verses. Likewise, in support of the deity of the Father, 1 Peter 1-2 informs us that our salvation happened by the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's an important verse. God chose us according to his foreknowledge. Someone wrote me yesterday. I haven't answered him yet. They said, are you a Calvinist? And that's a loaded question. <laughs> you know, I mean, Calvinism is like, people think of it just in terms of, you know, God chose this guy to go to heaven, this guy to go to hell or whatever. But Calvinism is a whole system of theology that affects every realm, the end times, the local church, everything. And it all comes down to how you view Israel. So Calvin thought the church was the new Israel, therefore in Geneva we'll have a theocracy. So when Michael Seveltis was guilty of heresy, he said, let's have him killed. Imagine that, someone comes to our church and, oh, he's shaky on his dog. Burn that fellow at the stake. <laughs> That's what Calvin did. Anyway, um, uh, but this term foreknowledge, prognosco, just means prior knowledge. And there are examples in the New Testament where that's just what it means. Paul said, you knew about me, prognosco, beforehand, what I was like in the book of Acts. But Calvinists want to infuse all these aspects into the word that when you look at it in other usages in the New Testament, it just means prior knowledge. So God, according to his prior knowledge, elected you. So if someone asks you if you believe in the doctrine of election, you should say yes. Because God elected you, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. That's not the issue. The question is, how did God elect you? He elected you according to his foreknowledge, his prior knowledge. In eternity past, he could look down the corridors of time, see who would respond to his general revelation and those whom he gave the gospel and whether they would believe or not. That doesn't change your free will. Paul breaks out in, into a benediction in his letter to Timothy saying, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, a reference contextually to the Father. When Paul was defending his apostleship, he states this in Galatians 1.1, the opening verse, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all is almost never disputed from the Bible. So it's not a point of rob, but for me not to at least substantiated from the Scripture, would be erroneous as well. So in describing the Father as God, the Lord Jesus said this in John 6, 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, because you don't earn it, which the Son of Man will give to you, for in Him the Father, that is, or even God, has set His seal. The Son is also recognized as God. A rejection of the deity of Christ is often the issue that keeps someone from becoming a Christian. This teaching is so very important, we will spend an entire handout on the topic later on in this course. When we come to the apologetic section of the course, the 10 most commonly asked questions, 
we will deal with the subject, Is Jesus God? And it's, we'll deal with it in great depth. There'll probably be a 12 or 15 page handout, I suspect. But that's something every Christian ought to be able to take their Bible and demonstrate that Jesus is God. These are basic truths. These are catechism type truths. Now, we don't typically as evangelicals use catechisms because we want to put our authority in the Word of God. But if a catechism gets a person to look up the Scripture and teach it, fantastic. But the, the, the problem with catechisms is that, you know, here's the question, here is the answer. But unless the answer is substantiated from the Word of God, the answer has no authority. And so there are certain truths that we really want to help those that God might privilege us to lead to Christ, or certainly our children and our grandchildren. And these are just like critical bedrock truths. Two, with that said, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's Word affirms that Jesus, the Messiah, is God the Son. Old and New Testaments teach that. Hold your finger here. Go to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We were were here on Christmas Eve, it just occurred to me. How many of you came to the Christmas Eve service? Yeah, great, about half of you, fantastic. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, if you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms, which is about dead center, and scan to the right, and you will come to Isaiah. Isaiah is a big book. Isaiah chapter 9, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So God speaks about a time where if you took out a map and you saw where the 12 tribes uh, were camping, so to speak, or lived, and, and he speaks of these two tribes that were part of the northern kingdom that were carried away, and God treated the land with contempt. But he mentions these two particular tribes because in this particular geographical area, God said he was going to later bring a great blessing. So he's speaking prophetically. The people who walk in darkness will see great light. And again, he says this is going to happen by the way of the sea. He's talking about the Sea of Galilee. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So if you took out a map and you took the district where Zebulun and Naphtali was, and it's on the Sea of Galilee and it's on a particular side of the Jordan River, there's only one place on the whole Sea of Galilee that fits the specifications. And it was a town that Jesus moved to in the first century called Capernaum. So when you think of the life of Christ, you think of Bethlehem where he was born, Nazareth where he was raised. When he began his public ministry, you remember he was booted out of Nazareth. They wanted to throw him off a cliff, though a year later he went back. Pretty incredible. But after he's thrown out of Nazareth, he makes this his headquarters, Capernaum. And virtually, we can't say for sure, because like when he's in Jerusalem, many other miracles he did, 
but they're not recorded for us. But of all the recorded miracles that Jesus did, we're in Galilee, and out of all the places in Galilee, most of the recorded miracles were in Capernaum. So the people are going to see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And let's just move down to verse 6 because I've got to finish the handout. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And he'll speak in verse 7 that there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So sometimes, as we learn in the book of Daniel, God will, in a single verse, give the whole program of the Messiah. And so, like on Isaiah 61.1, remember, Jesus went into the synagogue there in Nazareth, and right in the middle of a verse in this same book, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach, to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. This day it's been fulfilled in your sight. He didn't read the rest of the verse. Because the rest of the verse, the day of the vengeance of our God, is going to happen at His second coming. So Isaiah is giving the span, and he'll do it many times in the prophet Isaiah, if you've read him. He'll, he'll give in a nutshell the whole span of the Messiah, then he'll break it down as he follows. And so the fact that the government's did not rest on his shoulders at his first coming was for the simple reason that's going to happen at his second coming. But this one who is coming, his name, and when you think of a name here, it's not like we use names. Um, These names, oftentimes in Scripture, a name is like a character description. And sometimes we use it that way loosely in English. We'll say like, well, he made a name for himself, right? So it's not like people went around, hey, wonderful counselor. Uh, they didn't call Jesus one. So, someone called in the Bible like, fantastic question. Why don't we call Jesus Emmanuel? His name shall we call him Emmanuel? Because that's one of the character descriptive throne names of the Messiah. His name will be called wonderful counselor. That's one term in the Hebrew. I know a few English Bibles break it out like wonderful, comma, counselor. It's one term in Hebrew, wonderful counselor. These are couplets, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And sometimes people have broken them up in their mind because of maybe Handel's Messiah. Wonderful counselor, like these are two. No, it's wonderful counselor, mighty God. Now go back to the handout here. Um, where Where did I leave off? Four? Three, three. Old Testament scriptures like Isaiah 9, 6 teach that when God's Messiah came to earth from heaven, that he would be God and man. For a child will be born to us. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. For a child will be born to us, and then a son will be given to us. Understand that it is not just a repeat of the same thought, for there are two truths that are unfolded here. For a child will be born to us, that speaks of the humanity of Jesus. A son will be given to us, speaks of the deity of Jesus. 
Isaiah announces that the child is to be born, that the child to be born will be this son given. The idea is also explained by Paul. In the fullness of time, God sent sent forth his son born of a woman. So Jesus was not just born into the world. Jesus was sent into the world. And so he describes himself in that fashion in John 3. Remember with Nicodemus in the new birth? For the Lord Jesus was not only born into the world, but he was sent into the world. Because Christ was not only born into the world, but was also sent, the Apostles' Creed reads that Jesus was, quote, begotten, not made. Further, reading further in Isaiah, and we'll discuss that when we come to the handout on the deity of Christ. Reading further in Isaiah, his name will be called Mighty God. So not only was, not only was Messiah to be called Wonderful Counselor, But Isaiah predicted that he would also be called mighty God. Every time Isaiah uses the term God, El, he means deity. No exceptions in Isaiah. Tell that to the JW when he tries to wrangle with words. No exceptions. Every time Isaiah uses the term God, El, he means deity. And so just as he stated in Isaiah 7.14, he is Emmanuel, God with us. This title... Someone asked me, what's the difference between Emmanuel and Emmanuel? One's Hebrew, one's Greek. That's the only difference. That's why in Matthew's account, it's Emmanuel. And by the way, I didn't preface this, but this section in the opening verses of Isaiah 9 are quoted in Matthew's gospel as referring to the Lord Jesus. So it's not like, oh, is this really a messianic passage? There's no doubt. God's Spirit gave us commentary on it, and most Jews believe this is Messianic without having the New Testament commentary. The Bible is clear that the Messiah will also be a son that is given, for that Jesus' life did not start in Bethlehem, but as Micah 5.2 states, but as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings... Fourth, are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Again, it's a verse that's affirming the preexistence of Christ. In describing the Messiah, the prophet Micah predicted that his coming into the world would stem from the days of eternity. In the New Testament, in his prologue to his gospel, the apostle John asserts that the Son is both with God and that He is distinct from God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In fact, in the next verse, John tells us, all things came into being by Him, that is the Word, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being, showing the critical role the Lord Jesus had in creation with the Father, an obvious reference to Genesis 1.1. We know that the Word refers to the Son because just a few verses later, the Apostle John records for us in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. So the Word was God, the Word with God, and the Word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus claimed for himself that he is God. When in places 
Like John 8, he identified himself as the great I am, which, of course, his enemies understood to be a claim of equality with the Father. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself hid himself and went out from the temple. Describing his divine human person, Paul says to the Colossians, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Our Father, we want to join our hearts in prayer. We think of our Senate that will be meeting here over the heartbeat bill. And we pray that somehow in our state it would be passed. That precious little babies that may be unwanted would be protected. And that this law in other states like it would make an issue in the Supreme Court that would overrule Roe v. Wade. We pray for the new season of woman's life starting next month. We pray during the month of February as women come, older women teaching younger women, that it would be a rich time and lives would be changed through the teaching of your word. Thank you for my wife and her faithfulness to care for women and to teach them and to ground them and to help them to be great wives and mothers. We pray for our new president and vice president and even some of the evil decisions that have been made in the last two days with pics of a transgender person in a key place of leadership. Father, it's heartbreaking to see what is happening, how we are lauding things that you call an abomination. But we know these people are lost and they need a savior. We pray for our nation, that you would keep us safe, that we might have freedom to preach the gospel. Prepare us for whatever the days ahead will bring, that we would be faithful to Christ at all costs. And we ask it in his holy and precious name. Amen.